evidence and answers. If God is good, why does he command the genocide of entire civilizations? Scripture tells us that God is good and loving. But what does this mean? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our broadcast, Pat and Dr. Doug Potter discuss these difficult challenges and answer the question of, is God a moral monster? If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Here's our host, Dr. Pat Zucran, along with Dr. Doug Potter, with part one of The Genocide in the Old Testament. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of our time. Well, did God command genocide in the Old Testament? Is God a moral monster? You know, the dictionary defines genocide as the deliberate killing of a large group of people, especially those of a particular ethnic group or nation. And how do we explain passages in the Bible, like Deuteronomy chapter 20, where God commands the people of Israel to wipe out entire civilizations? It says here in verses 16 and 17, But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save nothing that breathes, but you are to devote them to complete destruction. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, the Israelites are commanded, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare but kill both man, woman, child, and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Well, how do we explain passages like that? You know, those are passages and challenges that skeptics raise against the moral goodness of God. Atheist Richard Dawkins says this, What makes my jaw drop is that people today should base their lives on such an appalling role model as Yahweh. And even worse, that they should bossily try to force the same evil monster, whether fact or fiction, on the rest of us. That's from his book, The God Delusion. Well, how do we answer these challenges? How do we make sense of some of these passages here that seem to show that God is ordering the complete genocide of a civilization or people group? Well, to help us address this issue is Dr. Doug Potter. Doug Potter is an assistant professor of apologetics and theology at Southern Evangelical Seminary there in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's earned his doctorate of ministry in apologetics from Southern Evangelical and a master's in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary. He is co-author of several books, one with Wayne Detzler, Cross-Cultural Apologetics, one with Dr. Norman Geisler on cremation, one of the few books on that topic. And he's also the author of a book titled Developing a Christian Apologetics Educational Program. So he's uh, spoken on this issue quite a bit. So, Doug, welcome once again to Evidence and Answers. Hi, Pat. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much. Well, Doug, you know, this command by God here on what appears to be the genocide of civilizations here and people groups is something that skeptics attack quite a bit, isn't it? 
Yes, it is. In fact, the new atheist movement of uh, one of the uh, quotes you had from Richard Dawkins is part of that group. And it's one of the first things that they usually bring up uh, in a debate about God or even in their books. Uh, So it's quite often thrown in the face of Christians. How can you believe in a God? How can you uphold that God is loving and good, and yet he can issue these commands to uh, seemingly wipe out, as you said, commit genocide with a whole group of people? It just doesn't seem congruent with what Christians say about God. So it certainly is something that needs to be answered. Yeah, you know, I get that quite a bit when I'm speaking with unbelievers and skeptics, whether on the radio or on the campus or just, you know, in the workplace. Well, help us try to make sense of this. Well, first of all, the people that here when we're talking about the role of Israel at this time, it is a what we call a theocracy. And Israel is often used as an instrument of judgment on wicked, unredeemable civilizations here. Tell us, what do we mean by a theocracy and the, you know, how Israel is used by God in situations like this? Yeah, that's a really good uh, place to start because we're not under a theocracy now. Israel is not even under a theocracy now. So we're dealing with a time period where there's a different economy taking place with how God deals with his people who he has called Israel in terms of governing them, working with them, and working through them to accomplish his will, and how he's going to be dealing with the nations that surround Israel and how they treat Israel. This is a time period where, where God rules according to the law that he has given through Moses, that he has set up a religious system in Israel in which uh, he is their God, and he commands them to do certain things on his behalf. And these commands that you read at the very beginning fall into that particular context. Yes. Now, when Israel comes into the promised land, they deal with a group of people called the Canaanites. And tell us about them. Who are they? Yeah, the Canaanites, really, this is a term, it's kind of a catch-all phrase for about seven nations that exist in the Promised Land. Remember that Moses had led them out of Egypt and that they're wandering in the desert, and they're with Moses in the desert waiting to go into the Promised Land, but there are groups of people, actually seven nations, we just commonly refer to as the Canaanites, already in the land. And so this land that he has promised them through Moses, they're supposed to occupy. And so the way that they're supposed to occupy it is by invading this land and doing battle with these people. That's the only way you can do things in the ancient Near East in terms of taking land is to battle against the people. But the Canaanites, we must recognize, we know from scripture, we know from archaeology, we know from ancient texts that they are a group of people, seven nations that participate in the most horrific sins that have ever been known in a part of any nation. In fact, I can't even list the sins for you. They're so bad because we're on the radio, and it would not be good to list them at all. But take my word for it. Read Deuteronomy 25. Read Leviticus 18. It'll describe them for you. But they are horrific sins. And this is a group of nations that have been in the land doing these sins for 430 years. So it's not like they just turned on a dime and have just started doing these sins when these commands are issued. That's not the case at all. That's the people that occupy the land, and Israel is given these very specific commands to go in and eradicate, take these people out, kill them, devote them to complete destruction in order for Israel to occupy the land. Yeah, you know, Doug, you know, when I'm in Israel or Jordan or 
or somewhere out there in the Middle East. Now, coming from their perspective, the Palestinians or the Jordanians or others, you know, coming from their perspective, you know, they're pretty upset about the Jews coming in and taking over their land. You know, they often say, well, you know, Moses is the greatest criminal you know, because he came in and, you know, invaded our land and we've been at war ever since. You know, how would you answer people's coming from that perspective? In order to answer that, you've got to uh, presuppose or have defended that the Israelites in the Old Testament are God's chosen people, that God exists, that he has spoken through Israel, uh, he has given them his word, its scripture. If that's the case, then and God gives them the land, which he does promise way back with Abraham and even through Moses. If he gives them the land, then that's their land. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He created everything. He has a plan in place to work through Israel to ultimately bring out the salvation of mankind. And he has a plan in place, and he has set that in place. So it is who he gives it to. And of course, this presupposes the truth of God speaking through to Israel, speaking through Israel, them being his chosen people. And Judaism in this particular context is the true religion. Given all that, then indeed you can understand, especially if there's already people that occupy the land or, or people that want to go in and occupy the land, that they're going to be very upset with respect to Israel. Yeah. And also, you know, you brought up a great point of the atrocities that were a lifestyle, you know, in these communities, you know, embedded in their religion and their religious practices. And so, you know, often when I'm talking with them, I said, do you understand the religion that was here? at the time of the conquest. Do you understand the things that were being committed here? And often, you know, they don't know about the temple prostitution and the child sacrifice and all those things that were going on. And any kind of civilization doing that would inevitably incur the judgment of God. Yes, absolutely. Especially the fact that they are in the promised land, and that land is considered sacred. It's where Israel is supposed to be. It's promised to them by God, and therefore it's very special to them. And to have these particular sins going on is really an, an offense to the people of Israel and to their God. Yeah, so I understand it's a touchy subject. You know, just like when I'm in a country like Japan, where it's not a fault of a lot of the young students there, but a lot of them don't understand why the bomb was dropped on them. They see themselves as, you know, an innocent victim of a great atrocity committed by the U.S. And when I explain to them, well, do you know what happened, you know, what the Japanese were doing in Manchuria and in the Philippines and in other parts of Southeast Asia, a lot of them don't know it. You know, a lot of them, you know, have never, because it's taken out of their history books, don't know the things that they were committing. I said, so, you know, a country that, you know, was involved in this, of course, they're going to incur some kind of judgment here. And so that's what we see in the Canaanites, in their ancient religions here. And so naturally they would incur the judgment of God. Yeah, and you're right to put it into context. Uh, history is very, very important, whether whatever the atrocity is, to just look at the atomic bomb explosion or to just look at these commands of God and divorce them from their context. Of course, they look like there's something horrific, but put them in their context. Put them in the, the context of who God is, who man is, and what God is accomplishing on the earth, and things make a little bit more sense. Now, some people might say, well, this is kind of extreme, Doug. I mean, 
women and children and all livestock. I mean, why does God want them all dead? Yeah, you're exactly right. It does look that way, but we have to keep in mind that one of the things that God does not want to happen to Israel, his people who he has called and given them this land, is for them to start to do these abominable sins. Because if they start to do these abominable sins, if they practice these, if they may incorporate these things into their livelihood, into their nation, then God will cut them off. He will disown them. And in order for that to take place, he has to completely divorce or separate Israel from these nations. And the way that God has decided to do that is to kill them and to kill them off. It's an attack upon their sin, and it's a judgment, as you mentioned, on their sin in order to completely separate Israel from these practices. It's just as if I have parents and say, hey, I don't want you to hang out with those bad people or with that gang because there'll be a bad influence on you. You'll start to do the things that they do. You'll start to believe the things that they believe, and so therefore I have to completely cut you off. Now, that's just an analogy, um, but God being the author of life and the author of death, and certainly is in a position to decide how he wants to deal with this and how he wants to separate Israel from them. And so it's really a judgment, as you said, and it's a separation from sin with respect to Israel. And that's why God wants to do this way and decides to issue these kinds of commands. And I know it's tough to take in, well, we've got women and children that are involved in here. But you do have to remember, as I mentioned, we're talking about God being patient with regards to the Canaanites for 430 years. Uh, In fact, with respect to Noah, he was only patient for 120 years, and he wiped out the entire earth. Of wiped out all of humanity except those saved on the ark. So he actually waits longer for the Canaanites to come to repentance than he does for Noah, who brings judgment uh, uh, through the worldwide flood on the earth and wipes out everyone, all of humanity, women and children included, except for those who are with Noah on the ark, his family that are saved on the ark. In Genesis 15:16, it talks about the sin of the Amorites, which are one of the Canaanite nations, not being complete. God is giving them time, 430 years, to come to repentance. So this just isn't done on a whim. This just isn't done instantaneously. God waits patiently for them to come to repentance. And we know through Rahab that they knew of the Israelites, and they knew of their God. So it wasn't as if they had no testimony to what was good and what was right and what was moral for a human being to act such and such in the world. They had Israel as a nation and as an example to them. So it's important to keep these things in mind. Yeah, you know, and I believe God did not want these practices to come into the nation of Israel, which they eventually did. In 1 Kings 11, it says that Solomon went after Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. And in verse 7, it says he built high places for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, and Molech involved child sacrifice, burning children alive at the altar of Molech. And so the point you make is a good one because, you know, the people weren't completely wiped out, and eventually these abominable practices made it all the way up to the palace of Israel. 
Yeah, you're exactly right. They failed to follow these commands. They failed to follow through with this. And of course, this is true of a lot of things that God issues in terms of command. And of course, God isn't shocked by this. He knows everything. He knows they won't uh, follow these commands. They won't be able to drive them out completely. They will be incorporated into their culture and society, and they will have to deal with sin being brought in. I think as we go along, it it is important, and I think I will uh, take the position as we go along that God really did intend them to fulfill these commands at face value. They were supposed to go in under the order of God and take out these people in terms of completely destroying them or committing them uh, to complete destruction. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at that verse in First Kings 11 verse 8, and it says of Solomon, so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And so... Here, it wasn't the men or the generals that influenced Solomon, it was the women. And so it's understandable how God wanted just, you know, the complete destruction of these nations, because even the women could be a powerful influence in bringing in these dangerous practices and ideologies into the nation of Israel. Yeah, you're exactly right. Well, Doug, you know, explain to us once again, I mean, the biblical context that helps us understand why God gives these commands. Yeah, I think there is a biblical context. There are other commands that God gives. I've already mentioned before, but it's worth repeating. Noah is told of the impending judgment on the whole earth by God, and a period of 120 years through the preaching of Noah is given to humanity of warning of the judgment to come, of the flood that is to come, of their drowning and the killing of men, women, and children, and calls them to repentance, which they completely ignore. And I think Sodom and Gomorrah is another example of a warning and judgment that comes through fire from heaven that comes down. I think one of the most insightful commands that we have that is very similar to the commands that we've mentioned in Deuteronomy and 1 Samuel as well is the command that's given to Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis 22. And what I think this command is so telling is because Abraham takes this command at face value as difficult of it was for him to understand this and to obey God and the struggles that he went through, he comes to the point where he takes this command at face value, and he takes his son out, Isaac, and he's going to sacrifice him, and it's God who stops him and provides a substitute in place of that. But the way that Abraham takes this command, I think, is prefiguring these commands that are given to Israel, that God gives to Israel, and how to deal with the sinful Canaanites. And we also need to remember that God is full of mercy and grace. Uh, Jeremiah 18 speaks of this with respect to the nations in particular. And uh, God is a long-suffering, and He is patient, and He gives plenty of time for these nations and these people to come to repentance. But of course, He does have a time, He does have a threshold in which He's going to bring judgment on them because of their sin if they remain unrepentant. Right. Now, these commands are given, you know, only for a specific time to against a specific, you know, group of people. So, I mean, how are we to understand these special commands? These commands, in fact, if people were to look at the context of Deuteronomy 20, you read Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 17, if you look at the verses prior to that, 
you'll really see the context because one of the things he does, and it's, it's lengthy, so I, I won't read it. It doesn't make for good radio. But one of the things that God spells out is how Israelite is supposed to deal with the nations that surround the Canaanites. And it's very an interesting contrast that is made there because to deal with the nations that surround the Canaanites, they're supposed to do what we would see judged to be a good thing in terms of how you conduct warfare. We could put it into that context. Nothing's good uh, about war, but they're supposed to offer terms of peace. And only if the cities and the nations around the Canaanites do not accept the terms of peace, then they make war with them. Then they're supposed to besiege the city. They're only supposed to kill the male who would be eligible as combatants. Everything else they're supposed to take as plunder. There they're supposed to leave the women and children alone and incorporate them into their society. Now these are the nations surrounding the Canaanites. So it shows us that these are very specialized commands. In fact, in Hebrew we call these the ban commands, B-A-N commands because they are very specific. They don't have application outside the land of Canaan. They only have application to the Canaanites. They don't have application to how Israel deals with wars, battles, and conflicts with any other nation. And so they're not even applicable outside of the context of Canaan, so they're certainly not applicable to any other time period of Israel and certainly aren't applicable to any other nation and certainly have no applicability today with respect to any nation. These, again, are very specialized commands taken from the Hebrew word uh, ban, which means devote to complete destruction or annihilation, to just kill them so that they do not live or breathe anymore. Right. Yeah. You bring up great point that a lot of people forget. I'm looking at Deuteronomy 20 verse 10 here. It says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do labor for you and shall serve you. So terms of peace, you know, as you mentioned, were given, but if they do go to war, then you go to war, but you spare the women and children, except what you said there to the civilizations in Canaan. And I remember talking to a hardened skeptic who brought up these issues of, you know, holy war in the Old Testament. And I said, well, if you want to apply the terms of holy war in the Old Testament, you're going to have to find some Hittites, Amorites, you know, Perizzites, <laughs> Hivites, Jebusites, because these commands are specifically for those civilizations to be wiped out. So that's a good point you bring up. Yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. It is only applicable even for Israel. Israel couldn't claim these for any nation today because you're right. These nations don't exist today in any sense of the term. So if they don't exist today, then of course these commands can't possibly apply to anyone. Yeah. Now, I guess what people have a lot of problem with, even when it's these you know, Canaanite nations who are committing these atrocities, the command to wipe out women and children. How do you explain that one? Yeah, and I think we've got to look even more with respect to the context, because to, to really understand that and to answer that, I think we have to look at these special commands, understand them as a face value literally from God to take them that way. There are some Christians that don't take them that way. Some people take them as hyperbole and put forward uh, arguments with respect to taking them as not being literal. But if we take the literal route, we've got to understand who God is is and who we are with respect to these types of commands that are particularly given. And 
I think we need to see some notion of taking the idea of who God is from Scripture and theology to really put them in a context before we get down to looking at how it is that God can take the life of someone who seems so innocent, a woman, a child, and so forth. We need to recognize that who Israel saw God as is someone who is described, for example, in the Scriptures, Isaiah 46, uh, 5 says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we may be alike? In other words, there's no one like God. In fact, earlier in Isaiah, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I am the Lord and there is no other. It says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study or perhaps at a conference, please give him a call at area code 808-483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zucran. Oh, 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 oh